0: This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! to Eakin, Seasons on Mars... Homelessness, Parrot Pro, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 353 for Sunday, June 25th, 2023. And as usual, I'm covering the latest news stories that caught my eye for this past week from our good friends over at Petapixel. So let's get into the news this week and see what we have. Undo Eken is a modular large format camera designed to grow with you. The camera is a large format camera system designed to grow with photographers thanks to its modular design. Available to back on Kickstarter, the Eakin is a 4x5 camera that promises to serve as the perfect gateway to large format photography. As photographers improve their skills or need, or their needs change, they can enhance and adapt the Undo Econ. The Andu Eakin is a 4x5, three primary modules, including a standard, range, and panoramicu. The standard setup is the lightest version of the camera and includes a rigid back and a movable front standard. Quote, perfect for a lightweight setup that will undoubtedly be a perfect fit for most large format photographic adventures. It has a bellows range of 32 centimeters and features a rear and front zeroing mechanism, ensuring a quick and ever effortless initial setup. Andu explains, adding that the Andu Eken standard is the easiest entry for photographers looking to begin their large format journey. For photographers using the Eakin for macro photography or with long focal length lenses, the Eakin 4x5 range module includes longer bellows and a rear sliding rail. Quote, this means that the total extension reaches all the way up to 420 millimeters, Andu says. The extra versatility adds about 100 grams to the total weight, bringing the Andu Eakin 4x5 range up to 1600 grams. Swapping between the standard to the range variant requires repositioning 10 screws, changing the bellows, and adding the rail. Andu says the entire conversion, which requires a hex key, takes 10 to 15 minutes. Andu also says that due to the nature of the camera's components, this is not meant to be a frequent conversion, but rather an eventual upgrade. However, swapping between the Range and the Panoramiku variant can be done on a regular basis and does not require tools. The conversion takes a matter of minutes. The Andu Econ 4x10 Panoramiku shares many components with the Range variant, but adds a new bellows and a rear standard to fit the panoramic film format. The Andu Econ is compatible with Liehoff Lens boards, and features a foldable design for easy transport and storage. It is compatible with standard sheet film holders and utilizes magnets to secure the bellows and back to the camera. The camera is graphlock compatible and features premium materials including anodized aluminum and walnut wood for durability and unmatched design. The camera has front zeroing locks, a zeroing indicator for the bottom of the front standard, and microlinear rails that promise precise focusing. The Ando standard camera starts at $700 with early bird pricing, a 26% discount compared to the eventual retail price. The range variant is $950 on Kickstarter, while the Panoramaku is $1,400. A Range Plus Panoramaku kit is also available for $1,970. The Andu Eakin 4x5 standard is expected to ship in January with additional variants scheduled to arrive the following month. And full details are available on the Andu Eakin Kickstarter page. And I wanted to cover this today just because I thought it was a really cool and unique idea. Uh, There's a lot more people getting involved in film photography and especially in large format photography. And I thought this looked like a cool way for you to get into that genre without spending a ton of money, but get a camera system that's also modular and can grow with your skills. And there are some really cool images of the camera in this article in the show notes, as well as a video from the Kickstarter page that you can check out for yourself. Infrared photos show the difference between winter and summer on Mars. The Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution MAVEN orbiter has captured some incredible ultraviolet images of the red planet taken at two different points along its orbit around the sun. MAVEN entered orbit around Mars on September 21, 2014 and was the first spacecraft dedicated to exploring the upper atmosphere of the planet. NASA has just released two infrared photos that were captured by the orbiter, one which was captured last year and one taken more recently this year. The photos represent captures at near opposites of Mars's elliptical orbit. Quote, by viewing the planet in ultraviolet wavelengths, scientists can gain insights into the Martian atmosphere and view surface features in remarkable ways, NASA explains. The two images were taken by Maven's Imaging Ultraviolet Spectrograph, or IUVS, instrument, which measures wavelengths between 110 and 340 nanometers, which is outside the visible spectrum. Quote, To make these wavelengths visible to the human eye and easier to interpret, the images are rendered with the varying brightness levels of three ultraviolet wavelength ranges represented as red, green, and blue, NASA explains. In this color scheme, atmospheric ozone appears purple, while clouds and haze appear white or blue. The surface can appear tan or green, depending on how the images have been optimized to increase contrast and show detail. The first image below was captured in July 2022 during Mars's southern hemisphere summer season, which coincided with the planet's closest point to the Sun. Similar to how seasons work on Earth, the summer on Mars is caused by a tilt in the red planet's rotational axis. Agriar Basin, one of Mars's deepest craters, appears at bottom left, filled with atmospheric haze, depicted here as pale pink, NASA writes, explaining the image above. The deep canyons of Vals Marinus appear at top left, filled with clouds colored tan in this image. The southern polar ice cap is visible at bottom and white, shrinking from the relative warmth of summer. Southern summer warming and dust storms drive water vapor to very high altitudes, explaining Maven's discovery of enhanced hydrogen loss from Mars at this time of year. The second image below was taken this past January at a time when Mars had just passed its farthest point in its orbit from the Sun. Quote, the rapidly changing seasons in the north polar region cause an abundance of white clouds. The deep canyons of Vals Moranes can be seen in tan at lower left, along with many craters. Ozone, which appears magenta in this UV view, has built up during a northern winter's chilly polar nights. It is then destroyed in Northern Spring by chemical reaction with water vapor, which is restricted to low altitudes of the atmosphere at this time of year, NASA explains. MAVEN will continue its observations of Mars, and the team is preparing to celebrate the orbiter's 10th year in the Red Planet's orbit in September of next year. And I thought this was really cool, and I highly encourage you to check out the images that MAVEN has captured of our neighboring red planet. They are really spectacular to look at. Who has experienced homelessness? Photo series challenges people's perceptions. A photographer who was given his first camera when he was homeless, which inspired him to break the cycle of transiency, has explored his past with a project that challenges people's perception of the unhoused. Christopher James Hall photographed 20 people, 13 of whom have experienced being homeless, while seven have not. He exhibited the photos in his native UK and challenged people to see if they could tell which is which. Hall explains to Petapixel that while homeless 10 years ago, he was invited to take part in a project that saw him document other people who are homeless. His photos were selected by the local council to be exhibited. Quote, seeing my work on display was to be the moment that inspired me to break free from the homeless cycle and become a photographer, he explains. A decade on, Hall is in a better place. Now a successful wedding and portrait photographer, he decided to revisit the project. Quote, I was emotionally pushed as I revisited the place where I slept rough on the streets, he explains. It was hard and I encountered few uh, new faces being supported by the charity. I was also met with a mixture of sorrow and excitement when I met the faces of the people that I knew, people who were homeless at the same time as me, who were still trapped in the cycle of homelessness. And these are some absolutely beautiful images. Hall approached strangers to ask if he could take their portraits, something he found to be daunting. For each of the portraits in this project, I had only a few minutes between the first moment of contact and taking their photograph, he says. I didn't have the luxury of finding a suitable location. I had to make the most of what was available for background and light. And they are some absolutely amazing images. The project has proven to be a success, just like the first one. It was exhibited, and he submitted the project to the Guild of Photographers, a UK photographer's association, which awarded him craftsman status and achievement Hall is extremely proud of. Quote, I have learned so much through doing this project, not only in terms of the photography, but also about myself, he adds. I'm looking forward to taking this project to the next level as I continue to work with the homeless through expanding this exhibition and providing workshops and training via the charities who support them. The project is also on Hall's blog. Most, more of his work can be found on his website, Instagram, and Facebook. And my hat's off to you, Mr. Hall. I think it's wonderful that somebody gave you a camera back when you were homeless and you were able to turn that into a career and get your life back on track. And I applaud you for supporting these folks who are living this difficult life on the streets. Padcaster Parrot Pro, the fan favorite teleprompter, gets an upgrade. I remember when Gordon Lang from Camera Lab showed me the padcaster parrot pro- teleprompter on a press trip in California years ago. He was setting up to shoot a video about the new camera we were testing, and as he is meticulous and professional, he had already written a script with all of his first impressions. I hadn't done a lot of YouTube at the time, just a few videos for my former magazine's channel, none of which were scripted. I often looked back at the content of those few videos and realized I had missed some critical points by trying to do the talking points off the top of my head. I worked at CNN in in the 1990s and have seen my share of teleprompters, but the versions used in studios are massive to project a script large enough to be seen from across the studio. They were also incredibly expensive and required a dedicated operator to scroll through the text at the speed of the anchor's presentation. Teleprompters are deceptively simple. A sheet of glass on an angle allows the presenter to reflect an image below the teleprompter while incoming light passes right through the glass as if it weren't there. Despite the simplicity of optical physics, a teleprompter needs a way to attach to a camera and something to project the image onto the glass. Those larger teleprompters at CNN used large panel displays and had to connect to massive broadcast TV lenses. No bigger than a Big Mac box, the Parrot is ingeniously simple. A series of adapter rings allow it to attach to the front of almost any lens, and a clamp system holds a camera in in place. Padcaster makes its teleprompter software, which takes any text fed to it and shines it onto the glass. Other companies make teleprompter software for iOS and Android, so the system doesn't require the Parrot app, but it's a good app supporting the company's remote control. I bought a Parrot teleprompter from the shoot with Gordon when I returned to my hotel room, and I've used it countless times since then. While it's a great tool, some key things need some improvements, and with Parrot Pro, these updates have arrived. While the Parrot is great, its small size makes it only suitable when set up a few feet from the presenter. As a result, I have the Parrot in my bag, but in my studio I use an inexpensive, fragile, and shaky iPad-sized teleprompter. The Parrot also doesn't support larger phones like the iPhone Pro Max and many Android phones, as it's narrower than those. The Parrot also has a pretty poor system for holding onto a phone with the lower portion of the teleprompter connected to a spring-loaded system. To attach a phone, it's necessary to pull down on the spring-loaded bottom and slide a phone into the space between the bottom of the clamp and the bottom of the unit. This is always a bit awkward, and while it has never scratched my phone, I've always worried that it will. Padcaster has announced a new version of the Padcaster Parrot, the Parrot Pro, which I have been reviewing for several weeks. The Parrot Pro isn't available to the general public yet, but the company has pre-sales bundles on its Kickstarter page. The Parrot Pro is much larger than the Parrot with a 6.5-inch widescreen. It's capable of holding any phone and even some smaller tablets, thanks to ditching the clamp system in favor of an adjustable panel That folds over the screen when not in use, protecting the glass, and can slide out to accommodate different size phones. A flip up lip keeps the phone from from sliding forward off the tray. Another issue with the original Parrot is that the clamp system means the phone can only be perpendicular to the screen, making the teleprompter hard to use when a camera is above or below the creator. The tray on the ParaPro can be angled, and the system uses GoPro adapter knobs to hold the tray in place. That's a clever design choice, as GoPro accessories are easy to find online. There's also a tripod mount on the bottom of the new Padcaster ParaPro, which is a great move. Not only is this good for creators that don't want to hang something off their lens, but it's great for anyone that needs to use a teleprompter for an audio-only application like podcasting and doesn't want to stare at their phone in their hands. The one quibble with the Padcaster Parapro is that the platform for the phone is not as secure as the clamp system in the Parrot. While I always worried the Parrot would scratch my phone, but it didn't, the flat tray of the Parrot Pro has no edges aside from the front lip. Since the Parrot Pro attaches to a lens with a circular mount, it's really easy to turn the unit on an angle while adjusting it, and there's nothing to keep the phone from falling off the sides. I'll fix this by bringing a rubber band with me, but I wish there were at least a beveled edge on the sides of the panel, as I'm a notorious klutz. The Padcaster Parrot Pro isn't available for sale yet, but it did recently conclude a very successful Kickstarter and is now seeking more funding through Indiegogo, where backers can get it for $129 with the adapters. The final price will be $199. And I wanted to cover this story this week because I know the Parrot is an extremely popular teleprompter system, uh, especially when out traveling on the road. I know the, I think it's called the Parapro 2, is the one that Jared Polin from Fronos Photo uses. And I do find it interesting that this one's called the Parapro, when the one Jared uses is called the Parapro 2. So I'm not sure what the actual differences are, are between the two. I'll have to look into that and let you know in a future episode. All right, I'm going to take a break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191. And you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at com, And you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. NASA funds five experiments ahead of 2024's total solar eclipse. The total solar eclipse that will shroud areas from Texas to Maine in darkness next April will be the last time to catch such an event in the contiguous U.S. until 2044. NASA wants to ensure the researchers are prepared to perform experiments during the event and has announced funding for five interdisciplinary science experiments. As seen on Space.com, the five funded projects are very diverse and will utilize wide-ranging instruments. Quote, the projects, which are led by researchers at different academic institutions, will study the sun and its influence on Earth with a variety of instruments, including cameras aboard high-altitude research planes, ham radios, and more. Two of the projects also encourage participation from citizen scientists, writes NASA. During total solar eclipses, the moon completely blocks the face of the Sun, which provides a rare opportunity to clearly see the sun's outer atmosphere or the corona. Scientists have long used solar eclipses to make scientific discoveries, says Kelly Corrick, program scientist at NASA headquarters. They have helped us make the first detection of helium, which has given us the evidence, or the theory of general relativity, and allowed us to better understand the sun's influence on Earth's upper atmosphere. One of the selected projects will use NASA's WB-57 high-altitude research aircraft to capture eclipse images from 50,000 feet above Earth's surface. Since the images will be shot from above much of the Earth's atmosphere, the team hopes to uncover new details about the middle and lower corona. The aircraft will be equipped with high-speed, high-resolution cameras that capture images in visible light and infrared wavelengths. The photos may also shed light on a dust ring surrounding the sun and help researchers locate asteroids near the sun. The project is led by Amir Caspi at Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. CASB led a similar successful project during the 2017 solar eclipse, although the new iteration features improved camera technology. Another project led by uh, Shadi Habal uh, at the University of Hawaii will use NASA's WB-57 aircraft to fly cameras and spectrometers, instruments de- designed to study light composition along the eclipse's path. The cameras and spectrometers will be used to study the composition of the corona and investigate large bursts of solar material. Quote, the team hopes these observations will provide new insights into structures in the corona and the sources of the constant stream of particles emitted by the sun, the solar wind NASA explains. Solar energy ionizes high regions of the Earth's atmosphere, the area aptly called the ionosphere, is useful for helping radio transmissions travel over great distances. Amateur radio operators frequently use the ionosphere. However, during a total solar eclipse, the ionosphere can change dramatically, affecting those communications. Nathan Frissell of the University of Scranton is organizing an event for amateur radio operators to try to contact people in as many locations as possible including places they usually could not reach. Quote, the radio operators will record how strong their signals are and how far they go to observe how the ionic or ionosphere changes during the eclipse. Similar experiments in the past have shown that changes in the ionosphere's electron content due to solar eclipses have significant impacts on how radio waves travel, writes NASA. Bharat Kundari, uh, of the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University will utilize a trio of super dual auroral radar network monitors to study the ionosphere during the eclipse. Condor's team will compare its results against computer simulations to learn more about how an eclipse affects the ionosphere. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory or JPL scientist uh wow, Thangamasi, Velasomy, I don't know how the heck you pronounce that, will work with educators at the Lewis Center for Education Research in Southern California and Solar Patrol citizen scientists to observe solar active regions. These regions are magnetically complex and form over sunspots as the moon moves over them. Quote, the moon's gradual passage across the sun blocks different portions of the active region at different times, allowing scientists to distinguish light signals coming from one portion versus another. The team will use the 34-meter Goldstone-Apple Valley Radio Telegram- uh, Telescope, or the GAVRT, to measure subtle changes to the radio emissions from active regions during both the 2023 annular and the 2024 total eclipse. The technique first used during the May 2012 annular eclipse revealed details on the sun the telescope couldn't otherwise detect, NASA explains. Quote, we're excited to see what these new experiments will uncover about our sun and its impact on Earth, says Peg Luce, acting director of the Heliophysics Division and the Science Mission Directorate at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., It is never too early to begin planning for what will be a spectacular solar eclipse. AccuWeather has prepared a helpful guide to aid photographers in locating the best places to view next year's eclipse. The path of totality runs northeast from Texas through Maine. And I thought this was really awesome to see that NASA is getting things prepared to undertake these five different experiments ahead of the 2024 total eclipse. So I think they're going to definitely find some really awesome new scientific information, and that there could be some awesome new images captured as part of this total solar eclipse. Image of full moon through a rock formation looks like a giant eye. A photographer created a stunning image of full moon through a rock formation in Utah, so it appears like a giant eye. Elliot McGuckin from Los Angeles created a beautiful composite image that was taken at the North Window Arch at Arches National Park in Utah. Quote, to me, the arch looked like a perfect eye from a certain angle, and all it needed was the perfect round eyeball, a full moon, he says. I took the photograph at the perfect angle to emphasize the arch's eye shape at dusk. McGuckin took the photo, which he calls Desert Eye, on a Fuji GFX100S medium format camera, and it received almost one, uh, one million likes on Instagram after he posted it May 17th. Quote, the reaction to the photograph has been wonderful and quite overwhelming, and I am thankful for the millions of folks who have liked, commented on, and simply... Enjoyed Desert Eye. The Arches National Park in Utah has more than 2,000 natural stone arches, and Petapixel has previously featured photographer Zach Cooley, who got a very similar shot back in 2020, but this had a few people climbing the rock arch. At the time, Cooley told Petapixel he used multiple apps to plan his shot, including Planet, the photographer's emiratus, and photo pills. Quote, they all allow for figuring out the position of the moon, but each one has different advantages, and I also like to cross-reference for shots like this, he told Petapixel's film mystery. McGuckin is a prolific photographer who regularly updates his Instagram and website with breathtaking landscapes, seascapes, and wildlife shots. He is also a physicist experimenting with science themes in his photos. Creating light comes that cones that represent how light moves through space over time. He had been featured on Petapixel before. In 2019, he penned an article about the highly unusual photos he took of a flooded Death Valley. More of McGuckin's work can be found on his Instagram and website. And it is a really cool image. I highly recommend that you stop by this article in the show notes and check it out for yourself because it is extremely cool. Congratulations, Mr. McGuckin. You pulled off a beautiful piece of imagery there. Next-gen LiDAR tech will map the ocean floor in extreme detail. The Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or MBARI, has been working for a decade to develop what it describes as next-generation LiDAR tech that it plans to use to create extremely detailed maps of the sea floor. Mabari, which regularly shares videos of unique creatures that live in the ocean's depths, says that accurate and complete imaging of the deep sea floor is critically important to understanding the biology and ecology of the largest living space on Earth. As important as this task is for research to date, only about 20% of the ocean floor has been mapped at a suitable resolution to be useful. The organization hopes to change this and has been working for the last decade to develop the tools necessary to achieve this goal. Mabari has been working with 3D Adept, the world's leading expert in subsea LIDAR laser technology, over that time period and is now actively working on the next generation of LIDAR that is capable of creating detailed high-resolution maps of the deep sea. LIDAR, which stands for Light Detection and Ranging, is a remote sensing method that uses light in the form of pulsed laser to measure ranges, variable distances to the Earth, the National Ocean- Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration explains. LIDAR is currently in use across a broad range of modern applications from smartphones to cameras. Quote, to meet our goal of surveying the complex and rugged terrain of the deep sea floor at one centimeter resolution, we're working closely with 3D at Depth to develop enhanced LiDAR technology that will be smaller in size and weight and require less power, making it ideal for deployment on... Mabari's robotic submersible and eventually are autonomous robots, too, says Dave, Dave Caress, a principal engineer at Mabari and the principal investigator of Mabari's seafloor mapping lab. Mabari has been working on seafloor mapping technology for the better part of 20 years and has steadily improved the resolu- resolution of its results. What started with the ability to generate 3.3 feet resolution in 2006 has now been reduced to one centimeter of resolution by 2019. To put that in perspective, the image below shows the huge difference in resolution between just five centimeters of resolution to one centimeter of resolution. Specifically, in the last seven years, Mabari and 3D depth have been working on what is called a wide-swath subsea LIDAR, or WISSL, which is optimized for seafloor mapping. Quote, in 2017, 3D Depth delivered Weissel rated to 4,000 meters or 13,100 feet to meet the custom requirements from Mabari's seabed mapping campaigns, including a 90-degree field of view that covers a seafloor swath twice as wide as the distance to the seafloor. Mabari Seafloor Mapping Lab has used the Weissel to map a variety of seafloor features and habitats at centimeter scale, including methane gas seeps, faults, submarine canyons, deep-sea coral and sponge communities, octopus brooding sites, and high-temperature hydrothermal vents, Mabari explains. Quote, after completing extensive design reviews and field trials, the team now aims to build and test the next-generation subsea LIDAR system this year. The new system will open up further possibilities beyond mapping the seafloor. The next-generation Weissel will have a 360-degree field of view and be able to conduct three-dimensional scans in open water over complex terrain and even on vertical terrain, Mabari says. The next generation system will be more portable and draw less power, well-suited for use on an autonomous platform, platforms that are used to dive to the ocean's floor. And I thought this was really cool, and I'm not surprised to see that they've been able to improve this technology so much in the last one to two decades. It's absolutely phenomenal, and I hope they have much success with this new latest generation of their technology. And last for this week, DP Review saved. Gear Patrol acquires the publication from Amazon. Nearly three months after DP Review announced its imminent shutdown and more than two months after DP Review is initially slated to be shut down and go offline, the beloved publication has found a new lease on life. DP Review is now owned and operated by Gear Patrol, a publication and content studio that focuses its coverage on broader consumer products, but now has the tools to focus heavily on the camera space as the current core editorial tech and business teams are being retained. DP Review's general manager, Scott Ebert, announced the transaction and news story on DP Review this afternoon. Now, this is from June 20th of 2023. Uh, We're thrilled to share the news that Gear Patrol has acquired DP Review. Gear Patrol is a natural home for the next phase of DP Review's journey, and I'm excited to see what we can accomplish together, he says. I want to reassure you that we remain firmly committed to what makes DP Review great, the best camera reviews in the business, industry-leading photography news and features, and one of the most active photography communities anywhere on the Internet. This is just the beginning of a new chapter for DP Review, and we don't have all the answers yet, but I'm sharing what we know below, and we'll continue to share information about this change as we get more acquainted with our partners at Gear Patrol. On March 21, DP Review's general manager, Scott Everett, posted on the website that after 25 years of operation, DP Review would be closing as a result of Amazon's annual operating plan review, a massive wave of layoffs and closures that affected tens of thousands of jobs. At that time, Everett said the DP Review would cease operations on April 10th, and that the website's treasure trove of incredible content and camera view- reviews would be taken offline. Petapixel's editor-in-chief Jason Snyder wrote uh, wrote that how I feel about losing DP review is difficult to put to words. The brand has been a mainstay since I took up a camera, and the space that they have now is one that I don't think will ever be properly filled again. This sentiment was shared with many around the industry as DPR always felt like a monolith in the photography space. In the immediate weeks following the initial bombshell news that DP review would close its doors, archiving efforts popped up to save the website's important content before it vanished forever. On April 7th, just days before Digital Photography Review was meant to wind down its operations and stop publishing new content, Everett posted a fresh update on the website assuring readers that its content would remain available as an official archive. After that time, Everest also said that because the archival efforts would extend beyond the initial shutdown date of April 10th, the editorial team that remained would continue to publish new stories for the immediate future. The days and weeks went by, and suddenly the closure update on DP Review, a brightly colored mainstay on the homepage since the initial closure was announced, vanished. Also, the website seemed to be working back into a regular publishing schedule, including new camera reviews, our previews, reviews, and image galleries. While it’d be misleading to suggest that it was back to business as usual, DP Review stopped looking like a site on life support. On May 11th, Everett posted another update, which until today stood as the last concerning DP Review's date and future. In that brief post, Everett said that the team would let readers know when there was news to share, and in the meantime, write longer-form content about camera technology and do some fun posts for the community. Since May 11th, DP Review has published fresh sample galleries, editorial content, hands-on previews, and reviews. After existing in limbo for months with its fate unclear to outsiders, DP Review has new ownership and if the promises and if the promises of publication is making on its website are held up, nothing should change. "Quote, the site will continue to operate as it was before with all editorial coverage and site features remaining the same and all historical content accessible." That being said, we are excited to begin a new chapter working within and alongside an editorial company like Gear Patrol and expect to continue evolving DP review based on customer feedback and the rapidly changing state of the publishing industry, Everett writes. And I definitely did not want to leave that story out in this week's episode because it's very exciting news that DP Review will continue on in its new partnership with Gear Patrol. So hopefully we'll have this particular website and all of its fantastic content around for many more decades to come. And that is all the news stories for this week. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 353 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. If you're not currently a subscriber, why not? It's absolutely free. It doesn't cost you a thing. It only takes a second of your time to hit that subscribe button in your favorite podcatching app. Now, I also wanted to encourage my listeners to head on over to the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, turn on all notifications, and make sure you get your entry in for my 10,000 subscriber giveaway, where one lucky winner will be chosen at random to receive a brand new Viltrox AF 75 millimeter f1.2 Pro lens for the Fujifilm X mount, which is a $550 value. So, you definitely do not want to miss that giveaway. All right, that's going to wrap everything up for today's episode. I will see you all again on Thursday.